I'm Joe. And I'm Ricky. And this is episode 17 of season three of the Beer and Broadband podcast. It should come out on October 12th, 2020. And... This time, we're not talking about anything that has to do with Halloween or pumpkins or anything like that, except I do have a pie mint. And for those people that are out there that are like, what is a pie mint? That is what happens when you use grapes to make a honey wine or mead with a mead, I guess, or whatever. In this case, we're talking about um, just some grape juice. I, I believe it was Welch's grape juice, you know, just no no sugar or anything like that added just just 100 grape juice uh, but it was basically two gallons of grape juice a few raisins some earl gray tea in uh, primary is um i guess uh, i made a concentrate of earl gray tea so it was like five honey uh, five uh, tea bags and a little pot um, and that was added to get it up to two gallons so it wouldn't actually be two gallons of grape juice it, but two pounds of wildflower honey, raw wildflower honey. Um, and then uh, in secondary, I added another one pound and uh, 1.6 ounces of wildflower honey, uh, which brought it back up. It, so it went dry and then it, it went back up to 1.02, but then it went dry again. Um, so uh, it, and it should have been around 1.35. So I'm not 100% sure that the, so the ABV on this may be a little bit higher than actually what it is, but I also added some oak spirals in, um, in secondary. Now that said 13.3 ABV, or it's like close to 13.4. Um, it, uh, is the same base that I used for the pie mint that was, um, you know, uh, that I made one gallon of that was, uh, uh, spiced. So okay, yeah, like the one we had a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's the same okay. same exact thing, same ratios of everything, except I didn't add the cinnamon and the clove to mm -hmm. it, but I added oak spirals, dark oak spirals, instead of adding um, the clove and cinnamon to it. So what do you think? Okay, so if it's based off of the other one, I think this is actually probably pretty good, but I think maybe something went wrong with my bottle. It's, it's on my side. It's incredibly bitter and acidic. That's I think, about right. That's that's the way mine is. It's incredibly is there any sweetness to yours? Because there's no sweetness left on mine. Like this is almost chemical. I think it just spoiled. No, it's um, it's it's not really sweet. It's, I mean, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe maybe yours did spoil. Mine has a little bit of a grape taste. That's the only like sweetness it has. Gotcha. Um, it's very acidic. It's, it doesn't really have any of the honey flavors that I'd want from it. I'm not as pleased with this. The other one, the spices brought out the, mm -hmm. the honey flavored with this one. It didn't like it, it didn't at all. And it should be like, it said almost 14%, maybe higher. Mm -hmm. um, it should be at a place where it didn't, it couldn't really spoil, but maybe it did. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't leave them out. They've been you know capped and yeah and my yeah. cap was on there pretty well but it it had a little bit of pressure which i was surprised by until you said yours had it too yeah mine but, had it too but yeah. but i didn't degas these yeah so i'm still, just... still going to give you the benefit of the doubt like there's there is a serious chalkiness to this like not mm -hmm. a like you know tea gets bitter but like uh like a chemical level there's like stuff sticking to my tongue it might have just been so i think mine was a reused bottle maybe something didn't clean 100 percent of it 
or something? Maybe. I kind of I kind of doubt that. Like I'm I'm really th- thorough with the cream okay. bones. I think I think that what you are tasting is the same thing that I'm tasting. It is the, the this is one of the reasons that I'm thinking about moving away from using like Welch's grape juice as a like a a fruit wine mm-hmm. kind of thing because it works with like um, like if I did like a, a safe ale or a safe cider or something, something that's meant to be like at a lower, like 10% yeah. or less ABV. But anytime I throw something in there, it's like a wine yeast or something. Mm-hmm. It just all, it like, it gets really, it like super acidic. Yeah. Um, and it like, it, I never capture any of the like flavors of the honey or anything like that. Um, to compare the, uh, the pie mint that you had before, was 13.1 ABV mm-hmm. um, compared to this one, but it had um, raisins, cinnamon, whole clove, and um, probably a little bit less grape juice than this one does. It also had rum chips, and this one did not. So I feel like the the like all the the spices are really what made that one work. Uh, where with this this one, it just it didn't work out very well. I don't, I'm not very happy with it. It's my okay. least favorite. It went, it's weird because the other was really good. Like the, the, it flips the two recipes, right? Like the apple became the better of these two when the apple was the lesser of the other two. Right. Yeah. So, okay. so I'm, I, I'm not offended. I didn't love this. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't love it at all. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't my favorite. Um, it gives, every time I've had it, cause I've tried it like a couple times out of the bottles that I made always gives me terrible heartburn. Like it's just, this very, very acidic. The yeast got stressed or something. I'm not sure what okay. happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I almost like want to test it. <laughs> like I think there's stuff you can buy like pH strips to try and like find out like what went wrong. That might be a fun experiment sometime. Like, yeah. Take a batch yeah. that's like good and then like purposely mess them up. Like put them in like a Tupperware that has like too much oxygen in it or like leave one just like out on the counter and <laughs> see if you can like scientifically go in and make some guesses of like which was which without like tasting it. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't think that this spoiled though, at least cause I've, I've drank, I guess four of, uh, of the seven bottles that I made now. Um, and you have one, so that would be a total of five. Um, so this would be the sixth one here. And there's one that I have left over that's just, I'm leaving it to age and see what happens. But out of, out of all of them, this is the best that it's tasted. It's been bad like the whole time. Okay. Like it just tastes terrible. And I tried another one where I just did wine yeast and, and it has the same flavors in it. When it's wine yeast and grape juice with just like a little, it just, it just, it doesn't taste good. I don't know why. Yeah. It's not my favorite. Yeah. Well, there's, there's some problems with using 100% grape juice from like a normal manufacturer because if you think about it, the, it's the ugly, not good fruit. They get yeah. turned into juice. Like the beautiful grape go to the store. So you generally get a lot of small grapes, which means there's a really big like pectin to like juice flow and they just they don't squish it like you would with like a normal wine so that that ratio is a little softer they just blend it up yeah. that's why they're so like black and dark and it right. could just be you know by the time you take all that other stuff out of it all you've got 
is basically the chemicals from the skin sitting around, which on one hand, they can give you a good mouthfeel in small quantities, but it just might be too large here. I, I think that's that's got to be what it is. And I think that when you have like bread yeast or like a safe cider or something like that, this, it, it works better with those flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're using something like, you know, love and be, be yeah, something really clean that doesn't leave a lot of stuff. Yeah, it it just doesn't. Say. Yeah, it it doesn't work because the the base juice just isn't good enough. And this just, I mean, like, I get none of the honey flavors. Like that wildflower honey that I use, it it wasn't very expensive. It's I think it was one that I got off of Amazon. It's just like an Amazon brand, but it's like actual raw wild. It's you know surprised that this was like an actual raw wildflower honey, and it. And everything else that I've used it in, that I made around the same time, absolutely delicious. It's fantastic. But in this, it just, it was bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. So let me, um, let me bring something up that I think we talked about this. Uh, this one must have been years ago because we were at your old place. Mm-hmm. Um, now that you're making more wines, have you ever considered going and buying the commercially prepared wine bases? I am going to. Yes. Yeah. I, I am. I am thinking about doing that. I've got a uh, strawberry wine that I've made from real strawberries mm-hmm. um, that it um, it was in my last batches. I don't know how it's going to turn out. Maybe terrible. If it is, I may throw it out and like try something else. But what I was thinking about doing was getting one of those big wine base um, things like you did of the strawberry stuff okay, and, yeah. and putting yeah, so that, that in there. That's definitely a conversation to have. I was really happy with how that worked. But I meant more like what we talked about originally, where you just go out and you can buy, and they'll ship to you directly, like five, ten gallons of like champagne grape juice. Oh like yes, wine grapes. Yes, I have thought. I've been looking that up. Uh, that is my next. So, uh, first thing that I want to do is I want to buy one of those like fifty, sixty wine concentrate mm-hmm. things, right? Yeah. And then. I've been looking at it and it would still be like a hundred bucks. I think it's like $120 to get it, but I could get like um, a six gallon thing of, of grape juice yeah. that I could use. And I, I kind of want to do that. And if you ever, if you're like, mm, you know, that's tempting. I'd like to go in and like, see if we could make some recipes off that. I'd be willing to go half and half with you on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, five or six gallons of like good wine, even if you're paying a hundred and something bucks for it, that's cheap. Yeah, it's not bad. Okay, so I've been sitting here sipping this glass, mm-hmm. and yeah, if if yours is bad, I don't want you to drink any more of it. Absolutely don't. Uh, I, this one, I'm confident that it's not bad, and yours would be the only bottle that went bad. So I'd be, I'd be a little bit, that'd be a little bit weird, especially as like I religiously sanitize everything, you know, and all that other stuff, and then I wash it super good, get it all heated up, stuff like that. Okay. Um, I. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I'd just be able to be a little bit weird. And I'll feel like terrible if it is actually weird, like bad, you know, but, I, don't know. I feel um, the opposite. Like, I think you, I understand you don't like what you made, but I know you've used a similar base and like the other thing, mm-hmm. but there is some stuff in here that's in my bottle that could just be with my bottle or maybe like it popped open a little bit. Like the cork came out more than it should have during transportation. And then, you know, it was just already too late. Some stuff got into it by then. You know, because those those corks breathe a certain amount. You know, this what I'm tasting in mine is an unrecoverable thing. I can't imagine you put spices on this and made some of the flavor profiles go away. 
Well, so the oak spiral like really overpowered this. The, yeah, like, but it, it, it's not oak. I mean, like there there's flavors in this that I would assume just like is spoilage. Like there's when I say when I say this is caustic, I mean like I'm not gonna drink anymore. Oh yeah, you absolutely should not. I, I, I the, but what I was saying is that for me, I just got some of the honey. Mm-hmm. The honey actually makes it a much more pleasant experience. It's the first time out of all this that I've gotten like some of that honey flavor. And I guess maybe like I had something on my tongue because I, mm-hmm. maybe I'd eat some cheese or something that, that like prevented me from getting that. But with the honey flavor, if that can come out, it's actually kind of pleasant. It's just not pleasant any of the other times. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess maybe I'll almost try and save some. Oh, no, I don't want to do that to you. <laughs> just try and save some to give you back later. But let me just say, in, in the years of experience I've done this, I think that somehow my bottle got messed up because this is, this isn't a bad recipe. This is something here has kind of gone like wrong. Like there's flavors in here. I don't think you can get in wine without a spoiler. You know, you, I've, I've done some bad stuff so far. I love you. You, though. you, I did, just, you I, did not, I, you did not taste that <laughs> basic sack mead that I had that I just, I kept trying to, to, I ended up throwing that away. Okay. Just to let you know, like it, Maybe. it went away. <laughs> Maybe I, I've been built up in the last couple. I don't know, but I'm, I'm just, I want to give you the out that uh, I don't negatively reflect on you anything that's in here. Because I think there, there is, at least in my mind, the possibility that I have just a messed up bottle. Because I've had hey. that happen before in some of mine. Because I always make like five or six gallon batches. When I break them down into like small servings, like I used to do some that would just be in like 12 ounce bottles. I'd occasionally get like one bottle that just something didn't go right with it because there can sometimes be like scratches on the inside of these bottles that like stuff hides in that you really just like can't get out, you know, things of that nature. Maybe. I mean, that, when, when we're talking about like a reused wine bottle, I got like, uh, I think uh, you got the cupcake, you know, wine bottle or whatever. Uh, maybe. That, yeah. yeah. Check the label. Uh, whatever the label is, but you know, I, um, basically took that, like scrubbed it. I have a brush that I get down inside really good and scrub it. And I, I used, um, uh, PBW and you know, everything else like that. So I'm, I'm not sure that that happened, but I mean, you know what, if it, well, no, you had a cork in it, right? So it's, yeah, not, I did have a cork in it, but the cork caps. was a little loose. I'll throw that out there. Uh, okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe the cork wasn't the right size or something. I don't know. Anyways. Uh, yeah. So, I don't know. the 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 jury is still out until you can yes, taste. The jury's out. I'm going to assume you are not capable of producing something that tasted like this from the other one. I'm giving you the out. <laughs> yeah, man. Like some like that. There was that that one. I was like, you know, this. I'm excited about. It. It's the best thing I made so far. And you were like, mm, I don't know. That's still that's that's a very young wine. I was like, all right. I guess it's not as good as I thought it was. You know, but. Um, so you've had you've actually had this when it was just sugar and not, um, and you said it was pretty good before. Yeah, well, see, that's kind of what I'm saying though. Like I know this base. I've had this with a couple like different combinations, and even if I like some of those original things you made when we were recording like back in March, mm-hmm. I wasn't as big a fan of. They are so much better than this is. Like this isn't an aging issue. It's not green. It's you know, there is something with this. I might actually, because I only poured like a really small sample and like a really like thin 
I don't know, it's a really wide cup. I might pour it into something like a beaker just to get like a better look at what's in there. Okay, do it, man. Uh, we we can do it before we record the next podcast or yeah. something, and you you can tell me what you think about it. So, uh, have you heard about Apple making ARM-based laptops? Yeah, we we've talked about it a little bit before. Uh, well, we're going to talk about it making real, real, real now. <laughs> they're okay. they're they're in the process of making them. They're supposed okay. to be not live yet. probably releasing them next year, I think. Um, but they're they're going to do like a MacBook that's a uh, ARM based macbook um so what do you think about that just as a as a concept i know you've kind of like said a few things about it before but i like they they're dedicated to this now they're moving away for microsoft's doing it too they're doing some arm-based laptops how do you feel about that your next computer is going to be arm-based yeah i don't know it's I'll, I'll admit it's one of those things that is like oh we're changing that's a big shift for intel at the same time, the only people that it like really, really matters to are generally hardware developers, like even software developers on like compiled systems. Like ARM is big enough; it's, it's got binaries. Um, it's, it's you know, if you're writing C plus plus, it's probably not that big a deal. I mean, if you're writing C, that's a little bit harder. But I mean, again, not too many people do C outside of software development. I mean, not software, but hardware development. So I can't have a strong opinion other than I know other communities are kind of upset about it. So I know there's got to be issues. They just don't pertain to me. Well, for me, the, this is this is the reason I'm excited about it. I get a 72-watt-hour battery, mm -hmm. throw it in a power-sipping ARM-based laptop with a really efficient screen, I've got a battery that lasts 24 hours, you know, yeah, um, I'm excited about that. Powerful enough to do, you know, most of the things that I would do, not powerful enough to do some of the other things that I wanted to do though. And that's where my concerns come in. So as an engineer and, you know, I'm not like a full on developer, you, you do most of the development work, but I still run code and write some code and, and do some other things like that. But as an engineer, sometimes I need my laptop to be able to just run through a chunk of things or run a VM or do something or, you know, when I'm creating a new architecture, I need to run a simulation or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, I need something that's powerful enough to do that. I am worried that what's going to end up happening is engineers are going to be relegated to having VMs that are on other systems that yeah. aren't local to their machines so that they can spin them up and spin them down and then they're reliant on other people to manage that infrastructure and that'll still all be x86 but it's sitting in some data center or network operations center or something like that somewhere and you have to be on a certain you know environment or something like that you or or you're relegated to older machines that you that you can run these on so you end up with like two machines you have your work laptop that you do all your email and everything on that's all compiled for that and then you have your you know non-work laptop that you do all your engineering stuff on or your work laptop but it's your engineering laptop and that's that 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 bothers me a little bit um now i have raspberry pis and um phones and tablets and other things like that and my you know iOS 14, you know, um, Apple tablet 
that I have my, um, you know, basically the, the last, um, you know, tablet that you'll ever need, you know, the last laptop that you'll ever is the way that that, that thing, um, it, it's super powerful. It does a lot of, lot, lot of stuff and you can even edit videos and music on that if you wanted to. So, and you get them in good storage sizes and I mean, it lasts a day. Uh, sometimes I don't charge it for like three or four days and I use it all the time. So, you know, my, my tablet shows that you could have a good computing experience, but still like trying to write emails on it and, um, doing some other things like that, like playing games. Um, but that, that stuff that I can get away with, I guess, from like a desktop computer. So I'm not as mm -hmm. scared about that, but just having the inability to, um, to, to kind of be the master of my own destiny and be able to like swap things out and do stuff like that. Like I'm worried that we're moving towards this, like kind of really commoditized, um, you know, kind of device thing. That's just all, everything's throw away. And, and, and we're already doing that with laptops and making them this thin and light and, you know, everything as we can, but I don't know. Um, you got any other thoughts on that particular topic? I just kind of rambled there for a little bit. No, no, I can back you up on that. You know, at some level, the computer is the computer, and that's great, and the native OS is great, and the hardware support is great, but apps run the work you do. And, I mean, that's kind of that's how Apple won the initial push out for the, for the mobile phone for the iPhone, is they just subsidized their app store and had so many developers come in there's like an app for everything. It seems weird that they're now essentially making a transition to where you're now calling into question how much of the software that's written for their systems is still going to work without major revision. We already know that it's going to require either revision or some sort of network. Yeah, network I mean, from what I understand, if it, yeah, if it's yeah. low enough level code that's being written, it has to be emulated yeah. or just rewritten again for ARM. So... You know, all those people writing stuff C, just native OS app, that could be pretty concerning for them. And, you know, the market's big enough now that most people don't have, you know, if you're like a serious software development group, when you're making an app, it's not only for Mac. So I don't know. We'll see. I, wanna, I wonder how many developers are going to have to make the decision, you know, enough of our market isn't on these new phones to bother switching. Because, you know, a new a new system comes out. I think actually the iPads might already have ARMS. I think I heard somebody say once. Oh, like, I, the, the A14 Bionic chip in the iPad and the iPhone, they're both ARM-based. Yeah, they're already ARM. So I shouldn't have said phone before. But, you know, enough people that write these apps do it for multi-platform. If your market share is not large enough over there to justify the switch immediately, you worry about having you know, a launch of a new laptop that, oh, hey, that key critical app that I use all the time, it's not on the new system. So how many of those people are still updating? You know, some of them will. Some people will buy the new Mac, you know, regardless of what's on it. But I don't know. It seems like in the COVID times of everyone's trying to save a lot of money, they're going to save money with the hardware from what I've heard. It's cheaper for them than going with Intel. But if you don't have the software to drive it, they don't have enough key buy-in from developers. That could be a, a rockier launch than they're expecting. You know, we haven't talked about this yet, but NVIDIA is buying ARM. 
Oh, really? Yeah. So Apple and NVIDIA not so happy with one another, and then Apple's made this decision, and now NVIDIA's buying ARM. That'll be some interesting bedfellows. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I was thinking maybe Apple's game plan was to eventually buy ARMs themselves, but then they're a more contained system. But now they're just losing it to another company. And I'm not sure that Apple would actually want to buy ARM. Uh, there's some problems that come along with that. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be an interesting next couple of years to see what happens. I mean, and think about, like, if you, will you buy a MacBook now? Like, in the next year? If you're a person that uses this platform for work? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, you got to... You got to make sure the software you're using for your work is moving with it. Yeah. So, well, I, I'm thinking more like x86. If Apple goes whole hog, whole hog into ARM, then everything will start going towards that. And just think about what happened when they moved from PowerPC to x86. Yeah, exactly. People that bought those PowerPC computers like the year before, they basically were just kind of stranded with okay. software. Oh, yeah, yeah. You mean like, do you buy that? computer now or are they going to freeze out and they're not going to have new, a lot of many new computer sales until the new hardware is out yeah 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 so let's talk about network engineers and whether or not they're expected to become developers so as a as a developer who was kind of a network engineer before you pretty much you know you you were like at the cusp of becoming like full-on network engineer right before you got hired on to our team to be a developer, right? Mm -hmm. As a dev, who was doing that? What's your perspective on this? Like, the looking at the market and everything that you see going on. Yeah, I mean, looking at the market, I think there has been an incredibly hard push. I mean, especially since COVID started locking places down and people are having to get more restrictive on who they're hiring. You know, there's been this shift at the upper level that these network engineers need to have. I won't even say just the knowledge. I think a lot of people are even looking for experience with some of these software techniques. I'm seeing less a demand for strong, like, fundamentals and more like specific tools, which I think is a bad direction. You know, you, you hire somebody that knows the controller you want to use. Cool. There's a little bit less training on that controller. But if, you know, me personally, I take someone with several years of writing code over someone with less experience writing code, but more experience with one particular tool. Because you never, tech moves so fast, you never know how long that tool is going to be in favor. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I do think we've seen it. You know, we talked about this a couple of years ago, and we kind of talked to the same end. At the low level, no, it's not expected. But the upper level, it's a really good skill to have because it might be a skill that starts being required. And I think we're starting to take those steps of that being a required skill. So actually helping several people recently to get their CCNAs and walking them through that. And also like kind of what I'm seeing in the job market for what people are asking for skills, the lines between administrator of like Linux systems, network engineers and DevOps or developer have been blurred so much that really network engineers are expected to know how to create, especially with Python, not so much with Java anymore, but with Python, you are kind of expected to know that like to a level that you can write your own code and write your own programs and write them well. 
with best practices in mind and getting to CICD pipelines and things like that. Um, I do not see the traditional network engineer, especially at the CCNP, CCIE level, yeah. being someone who can survive if they don't adjust to, um, to knowing things at, at, at a pretty deep level for um, Python and things like that. And, I, you know, we have talked about this before, but it's been a really fast change recently. Like even right before COVID, basically the, I, the attitude of companies, which I think is wrong, uh, seems to be hire a developer and teach them how to be a network engineer. Yeah. Um, I, I would, it was really better to be a network engineer and be passionate about that and then move on to being a developer and learning the developer stuff. And the reason I say that isn't because I think that developers are, I mean, like they have their place and they're like, it's just a different mindset. When you are a pure developer and you're only developing things, there is some tech there and you can understand these things, but your mindset is on, you know, what is the, the, latest software stack that I'm going to use to be able to create a front end or what is the, you know, the, the AWS stack that you don't think about like network security. You don't think about how networks run. And I've seen it with like a lot of the automations that come into networks, like developers, when they're just pure developers, they do not think about like how an IP addressing scheme will greatly affect the way that, um, traffic flows over systems and i think it's i think it's really bad that that happens but in order to survive sometimes you have to adjust right mm -hmm. and i really believe that if you want to be a person who is working on systems you have to know aci dnac python nso um I'm just thinking, I'm thinking of, uh, there's another one that's just escaping my mind. It's like sun, sundown, sunrise, sunset, something like that. Uh, you have to know these frameworks, but on top of that, you need to know code that runs behind them. So you need to know like a, a C or a C plus, you need to know, you know, something like that, that, that enables you to, um, to run, run that at a, you know, not machine language, but lower level. Or you need to know a higher level um, language that allows you to manage these things. So, yeah, I just I, I think it's inevitable. You need to know these things. Um, you need to understand Ansible. You need to understand, um, you know, how Linux runs. You need to understand how to, you know, set up whatever sort of Ubuntu, uh, RHEL. CentOS, System, SUS, Linux, whatever it is, you need to know how to set that up. You need to know how to understand that. You need to understand Bash and, and Z, ZSH and, and all those other shells like Corn or whatever it is, C shell. You need to understand them because you might be called on to do something with them because, you know, five years ago, that was really popular and that's just become expected of a network engineer. You also need to understand the systems that ride on the network. So you need to understand windows and Macs and even Linux that will ride over the network. But then you also have to understand how all the different things play into the network. And so the breadth of knowledge that you're expected to know at even an entry level is just become immense. 
this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I argue that for the that's not what's realistic. That is what people are trying to grasp at because they have limited resources. I mean, this is something that we saw a while back, right? Like if you look at IT 15 years ago, there was a really big push that you know, IT people weren't going to be around as much. We're going to hire software people because the software degrees became a lot more. I was like, it was around mid 2000s. You saw a big jump in more young people getting computer science degrees. And so people said, well, we'll just beat up these computer scientists. And that's fine. You know, that's what they did. It didn't work out super great for them. We saw an emergent of the IT person again. But we're kind of going through that same trend here, you know. And it's purely kind of because there are not as many people that get degrees in information technology. Like there's a pretty big gap between serious high level, like bachelor's level IT degree versus computer science degree. And that's just, that's kind of how universities teach it. You know, when I was going to school, the IT degree was more like a business degree. There, you couldn't even get an IT degree within the science field. You had to go to the business college to get it. So most of these people, they went over into comp sci. And so when you're a manager looking, well, I got all these people with comp sci skills, let's go for it. You know, they make the decisions they make because they think they have that skill set. There's some inherent value of the person with the bachelor's compared to the associates and a bunch of certifications, at least in their mind. You know, if we've seen practically, it's not that big a jump, but I agree with you on the point that depending on what you're writing, you need to be more skilled in one area over the other. Are you the person writing NSO? You've been hired onto the NSOBU. You're writing these code up. You're making NEDs. No, you don't really need to know as much networking to do that. And the reason you don't need it is because there's teams in the middle. The person writing the OS that runs on the system, you're essentially just taking their library of commands and you're splitting them up into a new data system. You're making the front end part of the website or even at certain levels, the back end. Are you in charge of the database store for some like automation? You'll need to understand networks for that. You understand data storage for that. You trying to do high availability? Okay, you need to know the cloud infrastructure. You don't need to know the network fit. You still need to what know I, that base system. And if you're just a developer and all you know is the development side of it, and you don't have any idea of what that other system is, you're at a disadvantage. I'm, I won't agree with that, but maybe I didn't express my point well. If you are doing the DBA part of a work, like let's like think about some of the tools that we have that run their own databases, but don't run you know, the database associated maybe with like a very particular network utility. Like when we think about like what we do with Meraki, like we have our own, TV outside of Meraki that runs with those tools. That was written by one of our developers. He knows nothing about networking and he didn't need to know anything about networking because it's just database storage. It's just data entry and retrieval. Oh, I'm going to make, I'm going to make one, I'm going to pause right there. Cause you just gave me that example. I'm going to tell you why it, he was at a disadvantage for not knowing networking. We had to move our infrastructure from one place to another. And he wrote that the scripts to move that from one dashboard to another. And he didn't know how that would affect the dashboards because he didn't know how the systems actually interacted with one another. And so when yes. it was over, but that's exactly my did point. not work. But see, I understand what you're saying, but that's the point in my favor. That database, the one that connects in with the tool, you need the network knowledge for. 
and he didn't have that, and that's where his disadvantage was. Mm-hmm. We have a whole separate database that maybe you, you don't know about. We've got one into Django. No, I know. It's, and, it's, a, it's a MongoDB. I understand. I know it very yeah. intimately well. Yeah, but that he didn't need any network knowledge for that. And that's the point I'm hitting. Like you're running in, you're hitting those, those systems. You don't need it. That's pure software, and that's okay. But that's not the networking part. And a lot of people in the industry are trying to skip over the networking part saying, well, maybe that part's not as important, but it is. So I worry about some of these hires because I know we've got some of these people that are pure developers that have tons of experience. Like I've talked to like people that aren't even like directly on our team that are really struggling with, they've been told now you need to go get these network certs because suddenly no they're just dictated. Yeah. that they're going to have to do it. Like, it's not them that's decided. Management came through and said, everyone has to have search to this level. And they're confused and they're struggling. It's not fair to them. But I think this is more management is screaming they want this. I have yet to see any of these candidates that actually check all these boxes come in because I think they're not able to really find them. Oh, because you're not. Too, you, can't, you can't find them. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I, I don't want to seem like I'm, I'm constantly interrupting you. I just, I, I, I want to go back to that thing that if you aren't first a network engineer and, and you, and you learn development, then you focus on all the things that matter in that comp sci area, right? Mm-hmm. Like ha- writing pure, writing code perfectly and doing all this other stuff and, you know, being part of these things that you never learn how to build a computer or you never learn how to build a, a proper network or distribute EIGRP or, uh, you know, BGP or even how ISIS and BGP work together or how an interface works with another interface, like, you know, a switch and a router, not the same sort of interface between the two of them, right? You don't understand how those things work. And so we have people that put things out there and they're like, well, you know, you can have a layer three, you can have a layer three switch at the, at the head of your network to do NAT translation. And that's, that, that doesn't work. That layer three switches don't work like that. You can't do that with them. You know, you see, you see what I'm saying? Like the point I'm making there. Um, and so if you have a network engineer that understands all that stuff, somebody like me or Thomas or you, you know, that, that understands most of those things. And then you, even if they knew some development before, move them up to a point to where they're learning more development, that's actually more to an advantage for the network engineer. Which is really what companies are wanting right now, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that that is more what they want. It's just not what they're asking for. Because, right. yeah, there's, there's spaces for both. The people that are developers first really excel on the things that are developer first sides of IT management. Right. But when you're trying to take a developer that doesn't have the network background and force them into what has traditionally been network engineering role, it just doesn't work as well. I mean, I think you'll see the same thing that we're seeing that some of these people are struggling with it and some people have just decided they're not going to put up with it and they've gone other places, you know? Absolutely. Like when you get a developer first and you tell them they have to be a network engineer, if they really want to be a network engineer, they'll do it. If they don't, they'll find somewhere that's actually just looking for what they are, a development. Yeah. And and there's there's places out there that they don't even think about networks. Like they just think about the computer and, and it connecting to the internet, you know, they don't, there's no network in between. Like, especially if you're a, you're a Microsoft guy, 
you don't think about what's in between the two computers. You just plug that in and it works. You know, you don't, you don't care about the switch and the router and everything that's in yeah. between it. I mean, yeah. I mean, even if you're just like a hardcore developer, you run your stuff through like APIs. You, I mean, you need to know your IP address and your port and that's it. Yep. You don't need to actually know how that communication happens because it's all happening over a layer you're not supposed to be involved with. Yep. And uh, when we lose sight of those things, it becomes really problematic. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's end this show talking about Amazon Luna Cloud Gaming. We have yet another contender in the cloud gaming space. Oh, Project boy. X Cloud threw its hat in the ring, and you had Stadia, and you got Nvidia that threw their hat in the ring, and mm -hmm. now you got Amazon. And who's going to win, Ricky? I want to know oh, who's going to win. It is funny because I was talking with uh, with one of our coworkers about this just a couple of days ago. We were talking about the chaos that is like trying to run stuff over the internet. I don't care how good their data center is. I don't care how good their cloud is. Until you can solve the problem that I have one ISP in my area who doesn't even run the long cable distance. They only run the like last mile to the house and they have no competition. So they don't care that I have, you know, 3% packet loss. Until you fix that problem, doesn't matter what else you do. It'll work in a couple key cities that have really good infrastructures and nowhere else. But you mean there's places that matter outside of Seattle and New York and maybe even Portland, Oregon? No, I'm, I'm thinking of when Google did Stadia, when they were talking about Santa Clara and they had the audacity to say, are we worried about the Internet? Of course not. If the Internet company didn't provide you good service, they would go out of business. I, I, they have exactly a vested right. interest in to make sure that our apps work. And then you see how that happens. Yeah, that didn't work out so well. Uh, look, I, I, I've used the NVIDIA game streaming a few times, and um, it's it's good. It's fun for what it is. Um, and, um, you know, if I, if all I had was a laptop like a MacBook, I'm, I might even use it because I couldn't I – didn't, I didn't have like a, a real – like gaming computer that I could use, but I, don't, I you know, fortunately I don't have that problem. And game streaming within my house is wonderful. Like, oh yeah, yeah. When you take the internet you, out, it works great. You take the latency out of that. You have like a gigabit connection, and you know you're working over wired ports. Oh man, it's so wonderful. But game streaming, you know, over the internet, and I have Google Fiber. It's not so good. Yeah. So. I predict that Luna Cloud Gaming will have the same problems that every as every other game streaming platform, and you know people are going to be just as unhappy with it as they were with these other platforms. Yeah, they are. There's, there's just they can't get the market share because of how bad the internet is to do any of the cool stuff. Like if you look at Stadia, you say let's forget about this internet problem, and streaming was even half as good as it would be in your house they would have the customer base and the money flow to start doing the things like, oh, well, the game is deeply discounted because it's just stream only. You don't actually own it, you know, things like that. But when you start running up to somebody and you're like, look, come get my service. You're going to have to pay full price for the game, maybe more, and you can only run it on our systems. And, you know, as soon as your neighbor starts streaming Netflix, your connection is going to start going bad. Yeah. You know, you can't, you can't sell that model. If you had the money to start subsidizing some of it, you absolutely could, but the the internet's not good enough to allow them to do it. Absolutely right. So, I mean, there's no disagreement for me there. 
<laughs> I think this is a ridiculous proposition, and it's just somebody that's trying to gobble somebody's money. Don't buy this, people. Don't yeah. buy it. It's it's silly. Um, but the, I mean, that's all I have to say about it. You you have anything else you want to say? No, I'm good. All right. Well then, this has been season three, episode seventeen of the Beer and Broadband podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.